You've tuned in to Larger Than Life with Pastor Ron Hint of Calvary Chapel, Houston. Here's a preview from Pastor Ron of today's message. You're, you're going to do battle against the enemy. But you know what? To not grow spiritually, just as not to grow physically as an infant, is abnormal. It's abnormal. So as believers, we need to be growing in Christ all the time. How do we do that? Through the Word of God, in prayer. And here's, here's another thing. God will make you grow because He'll put you in trials. That'll cause you to grow, really. But then, through the application of those things, through His Word, through prayer, through trials, in service. In today's message, Pastor Ron will encourage you not to allow your faith to grow stagnant. Don't be satisfied with just coasting along. You need to devote yourself to spending time with God and studying His Word. We live in a spiritual battlefield. We know the ultimate victory has been secured by Christ, but there are many agents of the enemy that are actively holding people in their bondage and fighting to limit the impact we have in this world. We need the strength and guidance of the Holy Spirit to fight this fight. Well, let's join Pastor Ron in the book of 1 John chapter 2 with today's edition of Larger Than Life. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected or matured in them. And by this, verse 5, we know that we are in him. By this, we know we are believers. We obey his word. His word is abiding in us. Verse 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walks. Now, you can hold your finger right here and turn left to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, a familiar passage to many of you, I trust. He says, he who says he abides in him. So I've got, I, I love God, I, I have his word abiding in me, and, and I'm abiding in him. What did Jesus say about this? In John 15, and we'll just move down to verse 4, Jesus said, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Four times in two verses, he talks about abiding. And what is that? Well, just as the branch really gets its life from remaining in contact with the vine, so we get our life from abiding in Christ. Our strength comes from him. It's that life-giving sap that is moving through the vine, through the branches. So when we abide in Christ, you know what we're saying? You can turn back if you want to 1 John. When we say, I abide in him, what we're saying is, I no longer want to run my life. Lord, I'm letting you run your life through me. I'm abide. I'm totally connected into him. And so he says in 1 John 2, 6, he who says he abides in him, if I'm making that statement, then he ought to walk just as he walked. Now, when we talk about walking, we've talked about this before. It means one's pattern of living. Our pattern of living is like Jesus. We're seeking to imitate him, to live as he lived. And again, not perfection, but he's our example. How did Jesus walk? Well, we might say this, if we were to sum it up, in perfect submission to the Father, perfect obedience to the Father. That's what we're talking about, obedience. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And so true believers seek to live as Jesus lived, to walk as he walked. So what is the first test of obedience, or first test? It is obedience. It's uh, seeking to keep his commandments, seeking to keep his word, have it abiding in me, and walking as he walked. Sin is not completely eradicated from my life, but I'll tell you what, there certainly is a different attitude towards sin. 
I no longer wish to do it, and I fight to have dominion over it, not be a slave to it. So number one, you have the test of obedience. Now, number two, as I said, there are two tests here, is the test of loving others. How do we know if we're saved? Do we love others? Do we love those in the body of Christ? Verse 7, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light, and that's referring to Christ, is already shining. Now, this statement might seem confusing to you at first, even contradictory. John says, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old one that you've known from the beginning. But, verse 8, it's also a new one. Okay, what are you, what are you talking about, John? Well, First of all, we need to figure out what that word is. What is what's, what's the commandment he's talking about? Well, the commandment is ultimately the commandment to love. We know that, first of all, as the verses continue. But we also know this from the scriptures themselves. In uh, Matthew twenty two forty, Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? Jesus said to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Love. And then Romans 13.10 sums it up perfectly. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So the old commandment he's talking about is love. That, that's nothing new. Everyone knew that. Everyone in the Old Testament, everyone in the New Testament, the disciples knew that word of love. But John says it's a new commandment. Well, how could it possibly be new? Well, the word new here is interesting. The Greeks had two words for new. One meant new in time. The other meant, one meant new in quality. For example, if I use the first word, if I bought, let's say, a new computer, I would buy a recent model. It's just new. It just came out. This is this recent model. However, if I bought a computer that was so revolutionary, so radically different from anything else, I would use the second word, new in quality. That is the word that John uses here. The commandment to love one another is not new in time. We saw that when we studied the Ten Commandments. But in Christ, it takes on a whole new dimension, really a new emphasis. And Jesus said that. Listen to what he said in John 13, 34, speaking to his disciples, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Well, that's an old commandment. We knew that. But then he said this. Here's the emphasis. As I have loved you. That is a whole new thing. How did Jesus love? Absolutely, completely, sacrificially. Remember he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard instead of old, you should do this, but I say. It was a whole new revolutionary way of living. Jesus said in John 15, in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life. Sacrificial love. And so he said, by this, by this kind of love, all men will know you're my disciples. And you'll know if you're my disciple. If you have love, this kind of love for one another. So this is the test of loving others. So just as our obedience is a measure of our relationship to Christ, so is our love towards other people. So look at verse 9. He's continuing the same thought. He who says he's in the light. If I say I'm a Christian, we talked about walking in the light. That was chapter 1. If I say I'm in fellowship with Christ and I hate my brother, that person isn't in darkness till now. So if we say, um, you know, I love Jesus, but I can't stand this person across the aisle from me right now. Now don't look then you're walking in darkness. That's outside of Christ. Um, Look over at chapter 4, if you will, of 1 John, uh, verse 20. It'll be a while before we get there, so let's just look at this very briefly. John picks it up again. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. Don't you love John? He's black and white. He says, get real. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he can see, who he has seen, how can he love God who he hasn't seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. So here, back in chapter 2 and verse 9, our context, he says, if I'm in the light, but I hate my brother, I'm in darkness. Now, verse 10, though, however, positive side, he who loves his brother abides in the light. I'm connected to the light. I'm connected with Christ, and there's no cause for stumbling. him. So this idea of loving my brother, my sister in Christ, is a, a signature of true sonship. And there's no, no cause for stumbling him, although I would say this. We are often stumbled by our brothers and sisters. Is that not true? Yeah, it's true. I've heard people say, you know, Christianity wouldn't be so difficult. In fact, it'd be pretty easy if it weren't just for the other believers. True? Yes. God calls us sheep, and some of God's sheep bite. True? Yes. And unfortunately, some Christians live their whole life like the walking wounded, crippled by... um, the pains that others, even in the body, have inflicted upon them. As one poet wrote, to live above with saints we love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. We've experienced that. None of us are perfect. But the command here is to love other believers. That's a sign of true sonship. If we don't, if we say, I hate another Christian, I'm not saved. That's how John puts it. Pretty clear. Verse 11, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. And he doesn't know where he's going. He's blind because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So there's a contrast between light and darkness and hatred and love. And we know that both are mutually exclusive. You can't have one with the other. It's impossible for light and darkness to dwell in the exact spot. And what John is saying is it's impossible for love and hate to exist in the same heart. Something wrong can't do it and he's saying there's there's the good chance then in fact he puts it black and white you're not saved and so our love for another is a sign of a redeemed life now think about this isn't it true if there's one place where the world ought to see love it should be in god's house it should be amongst god's people again jesus said by this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another and and you know what the world has every right to expect that and to see that here they really do but I'll tell you what, if they don't see it, shame on us. And if, and if as an individual you have hatred in your heart towards another, John says, examine your heart. Examine your heart. Good chance you're not saved. By the way, if we all want to get a good handle of what it really means to love one another, great Bible study to do on your own is to look up all of the one another phrases in the New Testament. All of the one another. There are a whole bunch of them. Let me just mention a few to you. Romans 12.10. Be kindly affectionate one to another. Galatians 5.13, serve one another. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another. Hebrews 10.24, consider one another. James 5.16, pray for one another. A lot of one another. That's really what it means to love one another. But here we have a test. The test of obedience and the test of loving others. This is how we can have assurance. If I see these things in my life, I can say, hey, I do have a relationship with Christ. Now, not only is there encouragement for us as sinners because we have an advocate and experiencing assurance because I keep his word and love his people, but finally, as we see fruit in our lives. As I look at my life and I see growth from the moment I'm saved onward. 
And that's what we have in verses 12 through 14, what we could call the affirmation. What we have here are three different levels of maturity that ought to be part of every healthy church. You have new converts. You have uh, spiritual adolescents or growing believers, you might say. And then you have mature believers or senior saints. So John begins, verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, the phrase little children is really one word in the original language, and it means born ones, born ones. It comes from the verb meaning to birth. And, and this is really a general term to describe everyone who's a Christian, because you remember Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, born of the Spirit, they shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about young converts and how great it is. In 1 Peter 3, 3, it says we are born again to a living hope, born once. Now, as we begin our walk through faith in Jesus Christ, we're born of the Spirit, but when we're first saved, we're really spiritual infants, true? And so John is also including that when he's talking about little children. So we're first saved, and when you're first saved, you're, you're a babe in Christ, but John makes this wonderful statement. I write to you, little children, because your sins are done deal, forgiven. A young believer may not be able to defend their faith like a seasoned saint, but one thing they can tell another person, I was once lost and now I'm found. My sins are forgiven. Man, if there's one thing you can say when you're first saved, it's that. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Isaiah 38, we're told that our sins are tossed behind the back of God And in Psalm 103, verse 12, he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to touch again on the other side. And so it's good as a young believer just to know my sins are forgiven. By the way, because of that, it's important to understand God's forgiveness towards us when we're saved doesn't come in degrees. In other words, even the youngest Christian is completely forgiven and will never even be more forgiven, which is good news. Now, what's the basis of that? Well, because they're such a good person. No. Notice the end of that verse. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Our forgiveness is a gift of God. It's not our achievement. Titus 3 and verse 5 says, Not of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. We talked about the mercy seat. He has saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, having justified us by his grace. So the affirmation of the young convert is sins are forgiven. Good stuff. Now, it's not natural, though, for a person to remain a spiritual infant, just as it's not natural for an infant to remain that way physically. Our children, as they're born, should naturally grow. And so it is true spiritually. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have other levels. And first of all, in verse 13, John addresses that extended level, that spiritual father. I write to you, fathers, for you have known him who is from the beginning. And again, remember the word know. We've talked about it. It speaks of experiential knowledge. Spiritual maturity doesn't come because of intellectual knowledge, nor of knowing Scripture. Just knowing Scripture doesn't mean you're mature in the faith. Or age, you know, you're 60, 70, 80 years old, so you're a mature believer. That doesn't mean that at all. Because I know some elderly Christians 
who know facts about Jesus, who may even know scripture, but the fact is their character is very immature. So how does one become a spiritual father? There's that, there's that relationship that's been tied into God for years and years and years and years. If it's not there, they can have all the facts but not be mature. This was the church of Corinth. Think of the church of Corinth. They, were mature, they, they knew knowledge. They had information the apostle Paul taught them. In fact, they were even, so they were well-educated, and they were even operating in the gifts of the Spirit. But Paul had to write to them in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, said, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual. I had to speak to you as babes in Christ. Why? There wasn't that connection between knowing the Word and applying the Word. But here, genuine fathers in the faith, mature believers, are those who year after year experience the difficulties of life, and they not only rely on the Word of God, but the God of the word. That's so important. And let me say this. Every healthy church needs these people. People they can come to and gain counsel with and pray with and know every single time they come to them, you know what they're going to get? They're going to get the Bible. They're going to point them to the scriptures and they're going to point them to Christ because of that depth over the years. Spiritual fathers. Now, moving on, John addresses what you might call for lack of a better term, uh, spiritual adolescence. Um, he calls them young men. This would really, this category, young men and women, and I like that because that could, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're 20, 30, 40, 50. It, it's the idea of growing, the vibrancy of life. Those who would make up the majority of the church, young men and women who are growing in Christ, and they are fighting the good fight of faith. So he says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Now, this is that middle category. We don't send, if you were to think of war, you don't send your young children to war. You don't send the, the older fathers and mothers to war. You, you send the young men. They are the ones that go to the front lines. The greatest effort, the greatest cost, and the greatest strength is expected from young men. And so it is spiritually. Those growing in Christ, serving the Lord, will find themselves on the front lines. And on the front lines, they will do battle against Satan. But here's the good news. John is affirming and encouraging them. You have overcome the wicked one. In other words, you will have victory through Christ Jesus as you're battling, as you're growing in Christ. Now, here's the tragedy. Because the cost is so high to mature in the faith and to really go forward, a lot of Christians are content to remain spiritual infants. They don't serve. They just sit on the sidelines. Why? Well, because the cost is too high. You're going to do battle against the enemy. But you know what? To not grow spiritually, just as not to grow physically as an infant, is abnormal. It's abnormal. And so as believers, we need to be growing in Christ all the time. How do we do that? Through the word of God, in prayer. And here's here's another thing. God will make you grow because he'll put you in trials. That'll cause you to grow. Really. But then through the application of those things, through his word, through prayer, through trials, in service. Then I'm beginning to put it into action. I'm beginning to step out of my comfort zone. And I'm beginning to take territory and be used of the Lord. And because of that, opposition. Opposition is par for the course for those who step out of spiritual infancy. But you know what? God will use you to make a difference. And and he tells us here, you'll be an overcomer. Romans 8, 37 tells us we're conquerors in Christ Jesus. Man, this is where the majority of the church should be in this category. Now, 
he reiterates these same categories again. Verse 13 at the end, I write to you little children because you've known the Father. So he comes back down to infants to affirm them again. You can know that your sins are forgiven, but also that you can know the Father. Again, that vibrant relationship with God. That's something to talk about. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon said. He said, little children, when they begin to talk and go to school, how proud they are of their father. Isn't that true when you're a young child? You can talk of them, of great statesmen, great warriors, great princes, but their father fills the whole horizon of their being. I remember when I was young, it's like, oh, my dad can do this. Oh, yeah, well, my dad can do that. True? That's how young children are. And really, that's what he's saying here. The children know they are forgiven, and they know the father. They know the Father. Let me say that it's also a good test of where you're at with Christ. Do you like to talk about your Father? Do you like to talk about the Lord? It's a good test of where you're at. He again addresses mature believers, verse 14. I've written to you fathers because you've known him who's from the beginning. Now, interesting. This is the only statement of all six of these that's identical to the one in verse 13. No change at all. Exact. Why? Perhaps John is emphasizing the fact that there's nothing more than that. We tend to think as we get further on in the Lord that there's got to be something more, some new thing. No, the greatest thing is to have that relationship with him, to know him. Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What he's saying, nothing else matters but to know him and have that day-by-day relationship with him. And then John closes by encouraging those spiritual young men willing to lay it on the line. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the wicked one. Now, this statement is almost the same as what he wrote in verse 13. The spiritual adolescents, those growing in Christ, are overcomers and they're strong, but he tells us what really makes us strong. He says, because the word of God abides in you. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it permeate your being. Get into it and apply it of all things. Be a doer of the word, as James talks about. So here you have John's affirmation. Those born again can have their sins forgiven because they know the Father. Those seeking to mature in Christ are made strong by God's word and they're overcomers. And then those who have been faithful for years and years and years are spiritual fathers, not just intellectually, but experientially. And would to God, we'll all grow up one day until Christ comes to be spiritual parents. So what do we have here in the first part of chapter 2? We have encouragement for sinners. We have, number one, the promise that we have an advocate with the Father, a spiritual attorney, Jesus, who's working on our behalf, Jesus Christ the righteous. And number two, we can be assured that we're born again. How do you know if you're saved? Well, you obey God's commandments and you love God's people. And then finally, we have an affirmation. And as I said earlier, every healthy church should have all three categories of these. It's important. Every healthy church will have new converts who will know the Father and are forgiven. Every healthy church will have men and women on the front lines serving, battling, going forward. And every healthy church will have mature saints. And there'll be a source of encouragement to the remainder of the church. Now, I thank God that I see all of that in our fellowship. But I'll tell you what, I, I want to see more. I want to see more. I want to see more converts. I want to see more people building and battling on the front lines. And I'd love to see it as God matures our church in the years to come. 
more senior saints just going forward in the kingdom. I pray that you would find yourself here somewhere, and no matter where you find yourself, you're wanting to grow more. Even if you're that mature believer, what did Paul say? I want to know him even more. And then finally, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know him at all. He knows you, and he wants to have a personal relationship with you. Would you, would you surrender your heart to him today? He loves you so much. He's not out to get you. He's come to save you. One lesson the book of 1 John teaches, along with other books of the Bible, is that the journey of faith isn't meant to plateau. In fact, your relationship with Jesus is supposed to grow deeper and deeper, even to your final breath here on earth. Each new day gives you the opportunity to learn something new about Jesus and a chance to fall more in love with Him. You can answer His call for your life each day, even when it's as simple as opening your Bible and spending time with Him. Today, we'd like to encourage you to take some time to sit with Jesus, letting Him shower His grace upon you as you spend time with Him. We're so glad you joined us today, too, in Pastor Ron's continuing study of the book of 1 John. Here at Larger Than Life, we know the journey of faith isn't always easy, so we'd love to be praying for you. Would you let us know how we can do that? Give us a call at 281-648-5800. That's 281-648-5800. We'd love to meet you too. Come join us at Calvary Houston for a time of worship and studying the Word. You can find out more by clicking the Calvary Houston link at ltlradio.org. That's ltlradio.org. We're excited to have you join us. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for being a part of our study of 1 John, and we hope you'll join us again next time right here on Larger Than Life.